0: And I had a lot of questions because it defied everything that I had seen elsewhere. And I couldn't understand why no one else believed that we were doing this. So I started to dive into the research and the more I realized what was happening as far as what patients actually experience during sedation, what happens to them during and after the ICU when we treat them this way, the benefits of what the hospital or the ICU was doing, the more I thought, wow, my colleagues in these other ICUs didn't know this. And if they knew this, they would change the way they were treating patients.
1: Welcome to Season 2 of Radical Nurse Talk, a podcast that explores nurses' communication in serious illness and health-related situations as a radical act of care. I'm your host, Patricia Strachan. Have you ever thought of communication as a vital sign for patients in the intensive care unit? In this episode, you'll hear Callie Dayton, a doctor of nursing practice, critical care nurse practitioner, and critical care outcomes consultant, share her passion for using evidence that promotes what she terms awake and walking ICUs. Communication is key to the ABCDEF bundle, a group of interventions associated with helping patients do better in the ICU and in their lives afterwards. Callie is dedicated to creating awake and walking ICUs by ensuring ICU sedation and mobility practices are aligned with current research. She works with ICU teams internationally to transform patient outcomes through early mobility and the management of delirium in the ICU. Callie's also the host of two podcasts, the Walking Home from the ICU podcast and Walking You Through the ICU. So welcome, Callie. I'm so excited to talk to you. And you're another... Nurse podcaster, so I'm I'm very excited to uh, to speak with you today and uh, focus in on nurses' communication in critical care settings, and specifically around this bundle that you describe as the A to F bundle. Before we do that, I wonder if you can just describe where you are and a little bit about your practice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm Kaylee Dayton. I'm a nurse practitioner. And I started my nursing career in 2012 in an ICU that I now call an awake and walking ICU. Now, any critical care nurse out there is going to either have their jaw drop and or cringe at that phrase because that sounds very different than what we usually do. So if you can imagine my interview with that nurse manager, she asked me initially, almost one of the first questions was, would you be willing to walk patients on ventilators? And because I was so new and... naive. I said, absolutely, I'm all about that, but you're going to have to teach me everything. So I worked there for the first few years of my career, and then I became a travel nurse and moved around every three months and worked in uh, many other ICUs throughout the following few years. And I quickly realized that what I had done in my home ICU was not the norm, that everywhere else I worked in the 11 other ICUs I worked in, the second someone was intubated on a ventilator, boom, they were deeply sedated into a medically induced coma. And I would ask questions like, why are they sedated? And I would be scoffed at and told, well, duh, they're intubated. That didn't make sense to me, but I realized that I was very alone in my perspective. And I just kind of went with what was normal for the next few years. Um, When I returned um, to that awake and walking ICU during my graduate studies to become a nurse practitioner, um, I was almost shocked again to be reminded of how sick these patients were in that ICU They have a bone marrow transplant unit in the hospital, detox unit down the hall, psych unit. It's right next to the homeless shelter, the drug park. Um, It's kind of the dump station for the whole hospital system. It then became one of the highest acuity COVID units in the state of Utah during the pandemic. And yet they still had most of their patients awake shortly after intubation and walking. And I had a lot of questions because it defied everything that I had seen elsewhere. And I couldn't understand why no one else believed that we were doing this. So I started to dive into the research and the more I realized what was happening as far as what patients actually experience during sedation, what happens to them during and after the ICU when we treat them this way, the benefits of what the hospital or the ICU was doing, the more I thought, wow, my colleagues in these other ICUs didn't know this. And if they knew this, they would change the way they were treating patients. So I was feeling this like weight of responsibility to disseminate this information. And that's what really inspired me to start the podcast, Walking Home from the ICU. And it kind of transformed into doing presentations for hospitals. And then I realized that that wasn't enough support. People need a lot of training and support to make these changes in practice, especially the nurses. They deserve that. Um, A lot of times for nurses, it's just shut up and do it, but that doesn't work for this kind of shift in practices. So um, now it's turned into consulting. So I train ICU teams to master what we now call it the ABCDEF bundle. I live in Spokane, Washington. I'm just a few hours from the Canadian border on the West side. I uh, work with teams internationally to help them master these practices.
1: I mean, it's really groundbreaking what you're describing. It it, it does seem beyond the possibility of being true. So I really want to learn about this. And I guess one of the things, my focus is communication. And I'm thinking about what you've said around, you know, patients sedated and we assume they can't communicate. And yet, if you were talking about an intubated patient and having them walking, imagine that we need to be able to communicate with them. So it's, uh, so I'm going to explore some of those things. Before we get into it, can you explain what the bundle is? What are, what's that acronym? We had patients awake and walking
0: while intubated in the 1970s. -hmm. Now those were not the same kind of patients we have now, the same kind of complexities, comorbidities, high acuities, right? But they were intubated and mobilizing. Medical induced comas didn't really come into standardization until around the late 1980s into the 1990s when we started to realize a diagnosis called ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. But we didn't know how to treat it. We just knew that it was inflammation of fluid filling the lungs and these lungs were stiff. So the logic back then was to give high volumes into the lungs. So they were giving 12 milliliters per, per kilogram into the lungs, which is two to three times more than what we do now. Now we do four to six milliliters per, per kilogram. But back then, boom, they were slamming these lungs with high volumes, high pressure. They had very different ventilators than what we have now. They couldn't sense and synchronize the patient's breaths. It was all very mechanically driven, pound the air in, pull it out, right? And they had stiff endotracheal tubes. So if you can imagine, it was absolutely impossible to be awake, compliant and calm with that kind of treatment. And so they were kind of stuck in the spot of, we think we're doing the best thing for the lungs, but now they're you know, levitating off the bed and fighting the ventilator. So that's when they started to bring in medications from the OR, barbiturates, benzodiazepines, opioids, paralytics. And when it's in the OR for a few hours, it's great. There's, they don't remember anything. It has an um, amnesia effect. They don't feel pain. Um, so we thought hey, this is not only beneficial to the lungs because now we see that they synchronize the ventilator, they oxygenate with better, but also their eyes are closed and they're not moving and they look like they're sleeping. So this is so much more humane and better for patients. So it came to not just treating ARDS patients that way with medically induced comas, but then they started to do that with patients on the ventilator for any reason. And when you think of, be aware of a breathing tube down your throat or don't be aware and just sleep through critical illness, wouldn't you go for the sleeping option, right? But they didn't have back then long-term research to say what is, what's the impact of having these medications going not for a few hours, but for a few days to a few weeks. They didn't know. And so in the late 1990s, we started to look back at that data and we realized that a lot of those patients died. And there was a correlation between how much sedation they got and how long they got that sedation and their, their survival rates. Then in the early 2000s, we started to look at What happened with those survivors? And we found that they were psychologically, cognitively, and physically severely impaired. So we started to dive into what is that PTSD from? What is the the depression, anxiety? And they found that patients that had more recall, more memories of the ICU had less PTSD. That knowing what happened in the ICU was protective. And then they started asking them, well, what did you experience when you were sedated? They're not sleeping. A lot of times they're having severe hallucinations. For some reason, these hallucinations turn into very gruesome, graphic, traumatizing scenarios. They think that they're being sexually assaulted. Their kids are kidnapped. They're kidnapped. Um, Survivors have told me that um, one specifically said that his dad became a carnivore and was vividly and graphically eating him on repeat. So when we think they're sleeping, there's a really high chance that they're not. They're likely having what we call now ICU delirium. Their brain is so disrupted from the sedation that they cannot get real restorative sleep. So, the longer you're sleep deprived, the more injury you're having to the, your brain, the higher risk you are of having totally disrupted um, brain activity and having really traumatizing experiences underneath sedation. So, we're gathering all this information in the early 2000s. And then um, the ICU I came from, uh, Polly Bailey was a nurse back in the 90s. And even though they didn't have this research out yet, she followed a survivor home. Uh, it was someone from her community. So, she visited her after. She'd been sedated and paralyzed for weeks. Um, she was a young mother in her 30s. And she went and visited her at home. And she was shocked to find that the husband was still having to help you, her use, use a bedpan in the bed. It took her about a year to get up the stairs. She was cognitively and psychologically destroyed. <laughs> and she had a lot of questions. She went back to her medical director, Terry Clemmer at the time, and said, what are we working so hard for? This is the life that we're saving them for. We can't do this to patients. And I said, well, what do you recommend? And so she scoured the literature. There was nothing at the time, but she followed her nurse intuition. And she said, you know, if they're losing all this muscle because they're not using it, if they're having these experiences under sedation, what if we don't sedate them? And I think this is about the time when they started to change the ventilator settings. So from 12 milliliters per kilogram to four to six milliliters per kilogram. And so she started to wake patients up and mobilize them and they could quickly see a contrast. And I love what t- Dr. Clemmer, I interviewed him in the second episode of my podcast. And he said, I was doubtful. I thought what Polly was proposing was crazy, but quote, I trusted nurses. I knew that she would keep her patients safe. So I let her follow her instincts. And they quickly saw that these patients survived, got off the ventilator, did better. But it was hard to get that buy-in for the rest of the nursing team because it was scary. It was new if um, you can imagine and maybe experienced patients come out agitated and thrashing because they're so confused. Mm-hmm. So later that hospital started a new ICU, um, a respiratory ICU, and they let Polly do the hiring of the nurses. So she hired nurses from nursing homes to have a total culture cleanse and said, welcome to the ICU here. We just mobilize patients. We keep them awake and we move them. And she taught them the rest of the ICU stuff. So the physician started to see that Polly's unit had amazing outcomes. These patients were surviving, getting off the ventilator, discharging home. And initially it was taking these patients from that first ICU, shock trauma ICU, and getting them off the ventilator because they couldn't get off the ventilator there. So it was kind of like a step-down unit, right? But then they started thinking, well, what if we send them straight from the ER? So they sent them straight to Polly right away. And she's like, well, if we don't have to damage them and then rehabilitate them, let's just keep them awake right away. So she'd let them wake up and mobilize them right away. And it was astounding. So she published a study in 2007 after she'd already done this for years, showing that it was safe and feasible to mobilize patients with really sick lungs. Their median PF ratio was 89. Um, Their um, Apache scores were 26. So those are just measures to say these were sick lungs, sick patients, and yet it was safe and feasible. Their adverse event rate was 0.6%. Less than 1% of their patients had adverse events. And those were like fall to the knee without injury, loss of feeding tube, They got like a little hypoxic, but recovered. Like these weren't serious events. So that study from Polly Bailey, I think she was still a nurse at the time and she was going to NP school. That inspired a big question mark, the critical care community to say, wait a minute, could there be a different way to treat patients? So then many other early mobility studies came out. At the same time, we're again, trying to understand what's happening to patients after medically induced comas. Um, We're trying to understand delirium. So we're having this big like renaissance of research coming out and um, they put together these elements that we knew improved patient outcomes and put it into a bundle. And now it's the ABCDEF bundle. A is for assess, prevent, and treat pain. B is for both spontaneous awakening and breathing trials. C is for choice of sedation and analgesia. Uh, D is for delirium, assess, prevent, and treat delirium. E is for early mobility. F is for family engagement. So these, this bundle came out about like 2014, 2015 and Society of Critical Care Medicine put together um, a group and um, invited, I think it was 68 different facilities to participate in this study. And they flew out some champions to Vanderbilt University, trained them up, sent them back and said, go teach your teams how to do this. And then they gathered the data on that. Well, if you can imagine, these were new practices. So they didn't fully get to Polly Bailey level right? They were lightening sedation, turning it off sooner, mobilizing some of their patients, but they weren't all the way there yet. Nonetheless, even with this spectrum of compliance with the bundle, the results were astounding. They found that seven-day mortality decreased by 68%. I know your eyes just got huge, right? Wow. Wow. If that was a medication, we'd have 100% compliance. If we knew that if we apply these elements, they're 68% less likely to be dead in a week. Boom. They found that Coma and delirium decreased by 25 to 50%. Now imagine delirium, this is acute brain failure, doubles the risk of dying in the hospital. So if you decrease delirium by 50%, even with a lower level of compliance, you decrease the mortality in the short term. And even uh, six months after discharge, patients are three times more likely to die. So you're setting patients up to survive the hospital stay, but also beyond discharge. They found that patients were, Um, 46% less likely to come back to the ICU, 46% reduction in readmission. And they were 36% more likely to discharge home rather than to a care facility. Physical restraint use decreased by over 60%. Wow. So you have less confusion. You can communicate better with patients. They understand what these devices are. You don't have to time down as much. They didn't decrease by 100%, but you can imagine this change in humanizing this care for patients. They were allowed to be human and be a part of their critical illness. They didn't have to be strapped down. You could talk to them. You could have them write on a clipboard and whiteboard. They could tell you their pain. You could better treat their pain. You could tell them where they were. They weren't scared. They weren't thinking that you were trying to harm them. Now they understand that you're the nurse trying to save their lives. I've had patients say, watch out, like, be careful with my tube. Like don't don't mess with my breathing tube. They know it's their lifeline. So it changes everything about Patient's perception, but also the nurse's role and their journey and their relationship with patients as well. So this bundle came out, you know, in 2014. This public study was published in 2019, and then COVID hit, mm. and it turned it threw us back into the practices of the 1990s, except for the the long volumes, right? But we were using high dose benzodiazepines, paralytics, for long, prolonged periods of time. Like critical care community had not totally. Achieved this high level of evolution that they were not protected from falling back into the same fears and habits of the 90s. Um, And so here we are now in 2024. We have so many studies that have been done since then showing that when teams, especially when nurses, make these changes, patient outcomes transform. I want to show like one um, from AACN, American Association of Critical Care Nurses, one MICU had a nurse led early mobility program come out. They decreased. Mortality in their medical ICU by 57%. They decreased time on the ventilator by 33%. They saved the system over $2 million, $2.7 million. Um, another unit, it was a CV ICU. Their early mobility program, nursing led, decreased falls by 100%, decreased wow. the central or the Foley infections. This is the Cotty's. Catheter's. So, yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I don't, your audience is varied. So, but urinary catheter infections by 100% decreased their central line infections by 50% and they didn't have any pressure injuries because of early mobility.
1: Um, that is astounding.
0: Yeah, and so this is giving power back to the nurses to transform outcomes. I mean, we all get into this to save lives and alleviate human suffering. I get really upset to think that I, I came from a perfect ecosystem. I mean, not that it's perfect, right? Every team has their flaws, but I came from this great, high quality level of care practice, but no one taught me why. No one taught me. We do this to prevent the harm. Ever like elsewhere, they do these old practices. But here's the risks of those. So when I was picked up and put into a different ecosystem, a different culture, and I wasn't empowered as a nurse with the evidence to advocate for my patients, I didn't. I didn't know how to push for best evidence based practices because I didn't know that that's what they were. Mm-hmm. And I just went with. And there's also a culture and nursing. It's like. Especially in the ICU, it's like you're part of the cool club. So you have to sedate patients and joke about it. And so I did. I joked about sedating patients because I didn't know. So here I am. The first time I ever talked to a survivor was on a plane ride. I still had, this is about seven years into my career. I'm in grad school. I have some questions. I'm learning a little bit about this, but the nail in the coffin for me was sitting next to a survivor on a plane ride. When he told me what he experienced in a medically induced coma and that he had his limbs nailed to the ground in the middle of a forest and trees were crashing down on top of him. And he couldn't get up and run and demons were coming out of the sky. And he was sobbing, telling me this as a total stranger on an airplane ride. And I realized, oh. and I said, it sounds like you had Icu delirium, which didn't mean anything to him. And I came to realize that these weren't nightmares or hallucinations for him. They were actual experiences. Like he was psychologically scarred as if he'd really lived them. I remember walking away being like, one, I thought he has to be one in a million. This has to be a rare coincidence, right? Because if this was a, like a normal thing, I would have, heard about this because I've been in, I've been an ICU nurse and so many ICUs for seven years, right? So I went to survivor groups and I thought I'd have to ask questions. Nope. The second I was admitted to the groups, I just scrolled through the posts and that's what most of their conversations were about. And I remember, and I still get fired up about it. <laughs> why did it take seven years for me to be exposed to that information? Why didn't I know if I was the one in charge of starting and titrating that sedation? Why wasn't I told what the risks were, what the reality was? Why wasn't the team supporting me and questioning whether or not it was even necessary? Uh, and why did I have to hear it from a random stranger, a random survivor on the plane ride? Why wasn't that part of my education and training? Because I didn't want to do that to patients. That's not why I was there. And also, I felt a lot of shame because I'm like, I came from an ICU that that did it right. <laughs> I didn't have to do those things. I just didn't know what the price was of the pra- the normal practices elsewhere. So I'm really passionate about making sure that nurses have the tools they need to provide best practices. That means knowledge. That means proper staffing, support, interdisciplinary dynamics, so that they can really
1: lead these changes in their ICUs. That is, I hear your passion and I can feel it over the airwaves and the miles uh, between us. Um, it gives me hope for nursing. You're absolutely right. The Potential is there. So let's delve a little bit into some of the things that you've said. I think the first thing that I just want to clarify you mentioned delirium, Mm -hmm. and that is a a big problem. Uh, So I think you're saying that preventing it is important. I suppose, you know, does it have to happen? Like, will it happen sometimes? And then how is it that we need to be interacting with people? Who have a delirium? Because that's actually a common thing that happens in hospitalization. You don't need to be in an ICU to have a delirium. And, and then we know that it needs to be distinguished between um, a dementia, that it's very different.
0: Yeah. So, delirium, again, happens any, in any part of the hospital. It's acute brain failure or dysfunction. There's a disruption to brain activity and there's an injury happening to the brain. It can come from all sorts of different causes. There are different risk factors like being female, having a baseline psychopathology, cognitive impairments at baseline, cardiac disease, living alone, alcohol use, um, lots of things that maybe already have the brain a little bit compromised. Then you enter into a foreign setting in a hospital. You had disrupted sleep. That's one of the biggest risk factors is sleep disruption or sleep deprivation. Infections. So sepsis is a huge risk factor. So even in my awake and walking ICU, though we avoided sedation, usually delirium I saw with sepsis They already have some inflammation hitting the brain and, and affecting the brain. But sedation is the main modifiable risk factor for delirium. Um, benzodiazepines are the most delirogenic medications. So nurses joke about like giving Ativan, it's our favorite drug on the medical floors, sometimes in the ICUs. Um, but for every one milligram of Ativan, there's a 20% increased risk of delirium. Now, Versed is another favorite benzodiazepine. For every one milligram, there's a seven to 8% increased risk, which doesn't sound like much until you have a five milligram low dose infusion going on. For 24 hours, now you've increased the risk of delirium by 840%. But if you look at EEG monitoring, when we're checking the brain waves and you compare patients that's sleeping to patients that are getting these kind of medications, the brain activity looks nothing like sleep. So benzodiazepines are the most toxic to the brain, the most disruptive. I mean, in a way, it turns it off. If someone's having a seizure, you can get them out of the and it turns it off. But you can't have that kind of disruption for prolonged periods of time without having an injury happen to the brain. Preventing delirium is so much easier than treating it. Putting patients in an environment that's as close as possible to sleep, continuing the routines that's as close as possible to their baseline, making sure that we're allowing them to sleep. So minimizing noise and interruptions at night, you know, things that are common sense. But a lot of times when we think that patients are sleeping under sedation, then we think, okay, we've got sleep checked off, but we need to understand that we're sleep depriving them. Mm -hmm. That's one of the biggest risk factors for it. And then after delirium has happened, it's really hard to get them back into reality and to get them, their brain restored. Um, One of the biggest tools to treat delirium is to, Mobilize them. There's something magical about even when a patient is fairly responsive, or they like can't follow commands, and you sit them up at the side of the bed. The over a few minutes, the lights come on. They start to hold their head up more, open their eyes more, make more eye contact, follow commands. You put the family, mobile mobility, real restorative sleep, family, and avoiding exacerbating um, factors that cause delirium-like sedation. So you put the family in front of them while they're sitting up, and suddenly. You, They don't, they think they're on Mars, but they know that their wife is there. That's a safe person. That's familiar. And the wife can talk them through it. So it's exhausting to have to reorient patients over and over again, but having family there, making that their job to say, you're in the ICU, you have a breathing tube. um, Here's a ventilator. You're safe. We're taking care of you. Those kind of things on repeat, they can, if they hear it from someone they trust, they're much more likely to calm down. The problem is we do a lot of these awakening trials. We turn off sedation. five in the morning in a dark room with one lone nurse, it's a really unsafe situation for everyone because they come out with panic. They think there's a snake down their throat. They don't know where they're at. Um, So oftentimes we end up just turning sedation back on. So if we understand what's going on in the brain under sedation, we understand what delirium is, we're panicked about it. We need to see delirium like a heart attack of the brain, right? It's an organ failure. And again, not only does it double the risk of dying in the hospital, but it sets patients up to have 120 times greater risk of long-term cognitive impairments. So it is different than dementia, right? Patients with dementia are at risk of having um, delirium, right? They already have some impairments to the brain, but now you have a secondary insult. Same thing with stroke patients, uh, traumatic brain injuries, you have a primary neurological insult, but delirium is its own neurological insult. Mm -hmm. So you can have one thing on top of the other, right? But after discharge, it can cause a post-ICU dementia. These patients, their uh, cognitive impairments no matter how old they are. You can have this in pediatrics, you can have this in geriatrics and anything in between. Under imaging, these changes to the brain, the changes to the structures, the perfusion, it looks like early stage Alzheimer's. Their IQ is different. Their processing is different. So this changes how they care for themselves. If they can live independently, they can go back to their careers. So if you have really high IQ patients at baseline, they can drop 20 2030 points we may not notice but they notice now they can't go back to being a lawyer. They can't go back to being a doctor like these high function status that they had before is gone because of the brain injury that they had in hospital. So looking at the long-term picture once and once nurses recognize that boom they care they're all about it. The fact is that they don't get exposure to this information but it's hard to treat delirium and the severity and the duration of delirium impacts their outcomes. So yes, delirium may happen without our our meddling with these interventions, right? But how we respond to it determines the trajectory of their lives. So for every one day of delirium, there's a 10% increased risk of death. So delirium may happen, but we catch it quickly and we start to mobilize them, make sure they get better sleep, get the family really involved. We can breathe them out of it. We can shorten the duration. And we see that in a lot of early mobility studies that mobilize them, not only decrease the occurrence of it, but shorten the duration. And that makes everyone's jobs easier. Delirium doubles the nursing hours required for care. So mm-hmm. it's in the nurse's best interest to nip this in the bud and to treat it because you may have a patient sedated today, but you come back three days later and they're your patient again. Now they're extubated and they're trying to crawl out of the bed. Your shift's going to be different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you got everyone has to scratch their own, each other's backs. And sometimes it ends up scratching their own backs. Delirium increases the time in the ICU by almost five days. Yeah. on average. Sometimes it's weeks longer. So understanding the price to our patients and to our units helps us prioritize what we're doing hour by hour for our patients.
1: That's fascinating. Can you tell me, are there certain patients that qualify for the this bundle, or are there certain people that, you know, for whom all or part of it would not be indicated?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So the bundle is this, um, I think it was like a toolbox of tools. I think sometimes we want to take it as very um, sequential order of like a protocol. It's a toolbox. So it requires critical thinking, which is important because every patient is different. They're different from each other. They're different day to day, hour to hour. So all of these tools may not apply to every patient every time. Um, So I I find the bundle very empowering for nurses that encourages their autonomy and their critical thinking, but they can't optimize the bundle without knowing what we're working towards here. So for example, um, if a patient comes in with status epilepticus, it's not the time to do an awakening trial. We need to get those seizures treated and stopped. Once we can see under EEG that they no longer have seizure activity, now we can take off sedation and now we need to mobilize them and um, assess for delirium and bring the family in and get things going. If they have intracranial hypertension and their ICP is above 20, not the time for an awakening breathing trial, but can we look at what our choice of sedation is? Are we, do we have to use benzodiazepines? Can we swap out Versed for propofol, maybe even Presidex? How deeply do they need to be sedated to keep those pressures in control? Can we choose a safer sedative? And then as soon as those ICPs are under control, let's say they come out with um, agitation during the awakening trial. Do we resedate them for that? Or do we try to communicate with them, understand what they need, reorient them, bring in the family, make sure the family's there before you even touch the sedation? Can we utilize all those tools to achieve the goal of the bundle? So a lot of times the bundle is interpreted as an on and off switch for sedation. Teams will tell me, oh, we do the bundle. We have awakening and breathing trials. It's in their charting. But you look at how it's done and it's done at five in the morning with one lone nurse and they're like stuck with this confused thrashing patient. They've got another patient to check on. They just resedate them because. Their options are slim, right? They also don't understand what we're working towards here. The b- objective is to have patients as awake, communicative, autonomous, and mobile in order for them to be able to communicate or express their unmet physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. So without understanding what we're working towards, we can't mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. customize all of these elements for each patient.
1: And and that is the... Uh... That's that's nursing is it's not a one size fits all. It is a constantly adapting, looking at what's happening, you know, readjusting. We know that, uh, and that and that's fascinating work. But it isn't a matter of just slapping on a band aid or one thing. So that's what I'm hearing you say is that nurses need the autonomy in their practice to be able to, I guess, if we looked at the bundle as dosages, different doses of, uh, you know, A, B, C, D, that that we could be constantly adjusting that. Absolutely.
0: And we see a dose dependent um, response in the outcomes. So in that 2019 study, when they had these great outcomes, that was an average across this big spectrum. And they broke it down to what happens when you have a higher level if we don't do averages, and you can see on these graphs, there is a dose-dependent reaction. So the higher the dose, the greater the compliance, the better the outcomes. So the more you master these, all of these elements, the more likely they are to survive and thrive.
1: Can you uh, just clarify for people who might not be very familiar with this? You're talking about waking trials. And Partly. I think you've explained a little bit here. So what's a trial? In terms of ICU life?
0: Oh, I love this question because we use these words. And I'm saying trial because that's what's been used. I don't love that word. We've been calling these trial, vacation, interruption, holiday. Oh, okay. And I hate those words because it reinforces this on and off switch mentality that, okay, it's five in the morning, time to turn it off. And this is 2016. I think I was at my third facility as a travel nurse and someone, I didn't realize that this is one of the facilities that was participating in the study. So the charge nurse told me, I was on night shift. She said, oh, here we have to do this annoying thing. Five in the morning, you have to turn down sedation and you have to see them start to thrash. And then, you know, they haven't had a stroke and that they can't tolerate the ventilator. Then just um, turn sedation back on and chart failed. Awakening trial. Now, I'd never done an awakening trial before. I didn't know what that was. I was like, what am I seeing? Is it really the ventilator that they can't tolerate? Is that why they're acting this way? I can't do a full neuro exam. I don't know what's going on. I had so many questions, but I just shut up and went with what was normal. I did what I was told. It like killed me to this day. I wish I could go back to my past self and say, you are a BSN nurse. Like you look at the evidence, research it, right? But I digress. That is oftentimes how these awakening trials are done. That we're just checking for a stroke. Can they move all four extremities? That's not what we're working towards here. So these, we should be working towards sedation cessation. Now, in cases in which there is an indication for sedation, like intracranial hypertension, the inability to oxygenate with movement. We don't know exactly if they're ready to be desedated. So, you know, in COVID, though I had many COVID patients awake, most of them were awake and walking. If they couldn't oxygenate with movement, we were stuck. We had to stop the movement and minimize oxygen consumption. Now they had to be prone, paralyzed, but once they could be supine, the next question was, can they oxygenate with movement? So that's where I see, yes, trial. It's maybe an appropriate term, but we're, our goal is sedation cessation, but we have to see, we have to test them. So we turned mm-hmm. on sedation, let them move, watch the saturation, say, are they physiologically stable without sedation? Once we saw that they were, now we're sedation cessation because we have to understand that mechanical ventilation alone is not an indication for sedation. Uh-huh. That's a big misunderstanding. So it's like, oh, there's intubated, sedated. Like We're not customizing care. We're just, it's a conveyor belt approach. You get intubated, you get sedated boom, 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 you'd like maybe on and off really quick. But when we believe that patients have to be sedated just because they're intubated, why would we work towards sedation cessation? We just think, okay, we're checking for a stroke. But when you understand this sedation has high risks associated with it. They are sedated because they couldn't oxygenate with movement. I'm going to check to see if that's still true. Has their condition improved? I'm this, They're sedated because they have intracranial hypertension. I'm going to check to see what happens to their pressures when I turn down sedation and they start to move. I'm gonna test. And if they pass that test, if they're physiologically stable, then I'm gonna keep this stuff off and we're gonna start moving on to the other elements of the bundle. Because now the risks of the sedation do not outweigh the possible benefits of it. Now that there's no longer indication, let's get it off
1: or at least minimize it. Yeah, so you're uh, describing the nurse really testing the abilities and evaluating the Mm -hmm. abilities. How do you talk to patients or tell patients that you're going to do this? I, you know, how does that work when you're at the bedside and you're with somebody who might be very frightened mm-hmm. That about what will happen? Can you just talk about how you're communicating with these folks, what you tell them?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I am so touched by nurses that are just talking to patients when they're sedated, because I don't know what they hear, what they don't hear. And from what I hear from survivors, a lot of times they hear you. They hear you talking about things. They hear how you talk about them. They're very aware of their surroundings. They can feel you. They're there. So nurses that already do that are oftentimes so good, but we have to understand what they're likely experiencing under sedation. You may say one thing and they hear something totally different. So, you know, they may you may say, hey, I'm doing a blood draw. I'm, I'm checking an ABG. You're going to feel a poke on your wrist. They may hear, I'm sawing your wrists off. So understanding that you have to communicate with them, but they may not really know what's going on. So before doing an awakening trial, trying to set up the environment to be as safe as possible for them, having their family there, warning their family to say, they're probably going to come out pretty upset and uncomfortable here's what's probably going on with their brain. They need you to hold their hand, make eye contact. Um, let's give them a clipboard or a whiteboard or their phone to text with. But be aware too, that these sedatives are not only damaging to the brain, but they're damaging to the muscles. Propofol is our one of our favorite sedatives, but it's a mitochondrial toxin. It's toxic to the muscles and it disrupts the sodium channels. So even if someone's been sedated 12, 24 hours, you give them a pen and paper They're in a propofol hangover. They can't write, which is really frustrating to them, frustrating to us. So this is one of the best things from my perspective as a nurse. If I can get them awake shortly after debation, if there's no reason to sedate them, I'm going to get them awake so we can go through this process when they have their brains intact. The family can be right there and they can text, they can write, they can communicate. That alone is going to help minimize their agitation, their angst, their anxiety, help me know what they need as far as pain where they need the endotracheal tube positioned, they need to be suctioned. Like they can communicate that. But if you're days after or weeks after sedating them, communication is a barrier. So we have letterboards that can point to, we have apps you can put onto iPads so they don't have to try to write everything out. But understanding, what do we expect? Nurses have to critically think, okay, they've been sedated for five days. They're likely to have delirium. They're likely to come out scared, thrashing. They're likely to not be able to write clearly on a clipboard. So I'm going to get a letter board. I'm going to have the family sit there with a letter board and try to sit with them while they point every letter because that's tedious for a nurse. We've got so many things to do, but the families are very invested. They, they And they might be able to read their lips better than we can. They might know what they prefer, have a guess of understanding, like they have more connection. So utilizing them as a resource and then sitting their head of the bed up as high as possible. I see waking trials happening at like 20, 30 degrees. Lay in the bed yourself. See what it's. I mean, when I do simulation training with the teams, I will look. We'll tape on a a holder, and I cut the endotracheal tube, but they still have it like in their teeth. Lay down with all these things on you. Which angle are you more comfortable with? And I have survivors say at least forty five degrees, preferably ninety. Sit me up all the way. It helps me um, with the secretions, the gagging. Like so, just setting them up in a way that is going to be more comfortable for them, and the right people available uh, if they've come out confused and agitated. That doesn't in the morning, that doesn't mean we can't try again. Get physical and, and or occupational therapy there. Get ready to sit them up at the side of the bed. It's amazing when you have someone that's really restless. I mean, if they're trying to self-extivate and like punch you, that's not the time to set them up at the side of the bed, right? You might need a little bit of sedation to get them down to a wiggly fidgety state. But then get them to the side of the bed, wear them out. Help them feel empowered, comfortable, help them then start to write on the clipboard. Um, again, depending on how long they've been sedated or what's going on. They might be too weak to hold their own heads up, Mm -hmm. but wearing them out may help them calm down.
1: So, how does uh, pain medication figure into this as well? Because it can have a sedating Mm -hmm. effect.
0: Yeah. And it's also, I mean, opioids can be delirogenic too. Mm -hmm. Um, So, if you look at PADIS guidelines, it's pain, agitation, delirium guidelines, It, it really helps us navigate multimodal interventions. So obviously non-pharmacological, but also things like Tylenol and and Toradol Mm -hmm. or Robaxin, Mm -hmm. like all these different options that obviously depends on their organ functions, things like that. But if we can have more continuous, long-lasting coverage and then do some of the IV opioids on top of that, we can really minimize the high-risk medications that we're giving. But people will say, oh, we have to sedate our patients because they're in pain. Why? Do we? I mean, does propofol treat pain? I mean, I've, had, I've heard residents to nurses, to all sorts of people say that, but that's not a pain medication. It masks symptoms of pain. So survivors will say they suffered severe pain, but they couldn't report it. They couldn't have, <laughs> have um, support during it. And then it would get twisted into their delirium. So yeah, they felt the endotracheal tube, but now they thought it was a snake down their throat. They thought it was a fire burning down their throat. And that's what they sincerely believe. So, even though you can say, hey, look, you had, here are the pictures. You didn't have a fire down your throat. It was an endotracheal tube. They still carry that psychological scarring of yeah. panic because there's a fire going down their throat. So, to best treat pain, we need to have patients tell us, I mean, at least express it to us so we can know is it adequately treated? Are we over treating it? Or are we under treating it? For intubated patients in my MSICU, it was rare that we ever had fentanyl drips going. So
1: that is the medically medical uh, intensive care unit, is that which you're...
0: Medical surgical intensive care Medical surgical, yeah. okay. So we had lots of really sick patients, ARDS patients, even during COVID, and it was very rare that you had a fentanyl drip going. But it does not mean that we just like said, tough luck, you're not getting anything yeah. for pain. It was, yeah. what do you need? What's helping? Did that oxycodone down your feeding tube help? Do you need something more? And so help, help allowing the patient to have some reins in their course, to have control.
1: And that... Um... You know, it's so interesting thinking about this because uh, very often in ICUs, we think about people not talking, you know, that, that the patients never can talk. And so uh, if you're talking, you're well enough not to be in the intensive care unit. <laughs> so, right. So you're yep. you're really challenging us. And I want to get back to. Well, let me say that. Yeah, go ahead. It's, yes. It's even. Um, it was
0: so normal there to give people their cell phones. I mean, because they were awake shortly after they had the dexterity and the cognition to communicate. I really underestimated the power of communication and what how important that was. And now it's even more personal because I have a daughter with mitochondrial disease and her cognition is intact, but her muscle control is so impaired that um, she can't talk, she can't eat. But she uses an eye gaze device and the girl is bossy. She's almost five years old and she tells us what she wants, what she needs. On her computer so when people say well they can't talk they can't communicate now I almost get emotional over it because I'm like that's not true and it's a basic human right to be able to communicate I mean that's the International Council of Human Rights declared that I think in the 90, in the 80s that communication is a basic human right and if we saw that in that way in the ICU we would be even more anxious to get sedation off because we want them to have autonomy we want them to know what's going on we want them to tell us what they need And what they want in their care. I mean, how often, I think um, futile care is a huge contributor to burnout for nurses in the ICU. When you have patients that are rendered voiceless, you don't know what they want. Now their family's making decisions that you know that aren't going to help improve outcomes. You feel like you're prolonging death and suffering. I've had multiple patients say, I understand and I choose to discontinue life preserving or life supporting sustaining measures. And we can make their death so much more peaceful. They can choose who they want there. They can choose, um, you know, people have said, I want a Diet Coke Slurpee from 7-Eleven from the gas station as my last sip. I want this music. Um, I've had people, um, okay, one guy didn't know he had terminal cancer and he ended up intubated because his, airway, his airways were obstructed. And so when we told him, hey, this is not really treatable, he said, okay, but I've got to sign my pension paperwork first. I need to make sure my wife's okay. So he filled out all this paperwork. Um, had It was on a weekend to had people come in from HR, from his company, wrote his goodbye letters, um, called people, sent out emails, had his family there and then decided. And I've had people say, I want to go home. And to them, they I know what they mean spiritually by home. And they know what that means. And so they can kiss their loved ones once they're extubated. They can tell them I'm making the decision. Their loved ones don't have to deal with it. I can go on and on about it. But that to me as a nurse was part of my joy in nursing. I didn't feel like I was prolonging their suffering, but I was allowing them to have a beautiful exit from mortality.
1: Yes, and maybe we can finish off with just uh, a little bit more discussion around the families. You've, You've spoken several times around the family, the family, the family. And although I think our intentions are good around being inclusive with families, sometimes... Maybe they don't get the message that they are really welcomed or you're kind of saying we need to be welcoming them a lot of the time versus a little bit of the time and to be involving them actively in some of this care uh, much more than perhaps is done now. So um, it's fascinating to me and really um, heartening to me to hear you say that. Uh, Work with families is often really, nurses find it challenging. Often people are living through very stressful conditions, much uncertainty, lives being changed, and and history, of course, underneath all of that, around history of their their own lives as a family. So uh, I wonder if you might be able to offer any other you know, recommendations or things for us to be thinking about around around how to be inviting people in.
0: Well, we talked a little bit about the evolution in this yeah. this culture and these practices throughout the past few decades, right? Especially the last 30 decades. Limited family visitation was really is really an antiquated practice. Think about how it used to be very closed, 1% of the time for a few hours, right? So as the ADF bundle started to come out more many ICs, not all, but many ICs started to revolutionize their um, approach to family visitation. So my wake and walking IC, that's part of my definition for one, is that it's liberal family visitation, open family visitation. Um, I appreciate in older hospitals, that's difficult in really tiny rooms. Um, I do feel like a lot of family members should go home and sleep at night because they can also have delirium. It can happen to anybody. But we were making progress in having families be part of the ICU team and then COVID hit Mm. and we shoved them out and we dehumanized everything, right? So we have an absolute delirium factory during COVID, deep sedation, lots of benzodiazepines, immobility, now no family at the bedside. So I think we're all in a process of recovery. And we lost a lot of seasoned nurses that knew how to incorporate families that had you know, they were they were older. I mean, you you just have a different level of maturity when you're in your 20s than when you're in your 40s and 50s. So mm-hmm. a lot of what I learned about this level of nursing care was from my mentors that have been doing this for 20, 30 years, right? When we lost those seasoned clinicians, new ones came in and they didn't get practice with talking with families, breaking things down, educating, how to navigate dynamics. We lost a lot of the family role, which means that we lost a vital tool in preventing and treating delirium and helping manage patients agitation and things that affect nursing nurses roles. I think there's also this cultural thing. If you look at a lot of nursing memes, they joke about their intubated sedation, sedated families left for the night. Perfect patient. You know, there's a lot of like cultural things that impact how we perceive families. Is every family super helpful and wonderful and joyous to be around? Absolutely not. But are we creating an environment in which we increase the hostility, the fear, the stress of family members, absolutely. They're sucked into this environment that is totally foreign to them. They're extremely vulnerable, helpless, and they have no control. They can't control that their family member showed up in this condition. They're terrified that they're going to lose them. Um, and their family member is not there to help them support each other through this process. And they're sitting in a corner, told to sit down and shut up. And they ask questions and they're not sure if they're welcome to ask questions. They don't know what their role is. They want to help, but then they feel even things like, When nurses don't understand delirium and patients are moving around and agitated, not agitated, but just starting to physically respond to family's touch and communication. I see on even social media, nurses will say, please stop working them up. Stay away. Don't touch them. Let them sleep, right? When they're sedated. But if nurses understood, actually, they're not sleeping. They're probably really scared. Family's comforting. They're trying to connect with their family. They're desperate to get to their family. Mm -hmm. I'm actually going to turn sedation off so that they can connect. So it's figuring out how to utilize them. So um, when I train teams, I give them family education materials. And part of that is uh, a job description Welcome to the ICU. You're now part of the ICU team. You didn't sign up for this job, but you have a job. And your job is to communicate with them, to reorient them. I can't sit there and say, you have a tube down your throat, blah, blah, blah. But I can put you on top of that. You've got nothing else to do. Um, you hold the clipboard for them while they write. You do the letterboard. You do the app. like. Tell me what they're, what they're saying, but it may take a while to get there. So you're in charge of that. You hold their hand. You help me understand if they're in pain and what they want. Um, help them stay calm. Watch their hands. Not that they should be solely reliable or liable for self-extubation, things like that. But families or patients are so much less likely to self-extubate. One, if they're not delirious. Delirium alone increases self-extubation by 11.6 times. Whoa. So having the family there protects them from the the scenario of having patients not know what the tube is, but also they're watching their hands. You know what I mean? They're holding their hands. They're motivating them to do mobility. So when they're going to mobilize and like you are you sit in front of them or if they're not motivated, you could say, hey, you're the cheerleader, you're the coach, you're whatever you need to be, but like you get them going. So I've had, you know, family say, I'm 70 years old. I can't have you stuck in bed at home. I can't take care of you. You get yourself out of bed. Like, you know, just whatever it takes, they know what... That patient needs to be motivated to work hard. It is hard to mobilize during critical illness. So when families feel like they have a role, they're contributing, they're not helpless and powerless in the situation anymore. They're much calmer. They can see that you care about their loved one. They're going to trust you more. Um, And so there are things that we can do to help ease the burden. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of having one family member be the um, information receiver and disseminator Mm -hmm. so that nurses aren't burnt out with tons of phone calls. So I think we need to... Structure our interactions in our relationship with the families up front to say who's going to be the voice. We don't need calls from everyone else. We'll give you the information. You disseminate it. Families could be like doing an ICU diary. We can have all sorts of things. They can help them with in bed mobility move your legs, move your arms, resistant bands. We keep families busy, patients busy so that they're not there call on the call light all the time. Yeah. I know that sounds terrible, but let's be real like that's a hard thing. So we can give them clear instructions and they can understand that they are helping their loved ones survive and thrive and come home the same person that was admitted.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, your point about call bells, I, you know, patients use them because they have a need, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. I think that's that's what you're saying. It's not, they're not trying to irritate us. Yes. Um, right, it's it's not about us. And a family and... member
0: can like fluff the pillow, pull the sheet up, change yeah. the the angle of the fan. Like they can, they want to do those things. Like, sure. Let them.
1: One last question: You've spoken several times about uh, meeting people who've had an ICU stay. In general, um, what do patients say who have survived ICU and been uh, uh, had the ICU the the ABCDEF bundle uh, enacted in their in their care, have they been afraid? Uh, do they worry about pain? Uh, are they terrified about having a breathing tube in and being able to feel it? I, I'm curious yeah. about that.
0: No, I was too. That's why I interviewed them for my podcast. Because like we we gotta really understand their perspective from all different approaches. So um, on the third episode of my podcast, um, I interview a Susan East. She's a three times ARDS survivor. The first time she had the classic cocktail of sedation and mobility, she watched babies burn for weeks and tried desperately to save them. So she was traumatized. She could barely lift a finger when she came out of her coma, had terrible rehabilitation. She made made her husband carry her home and had a friend, physical therapist rehabilitate her at home because it was such a terrible experience. Following her own intuition, she went to a lawyer once she was able physically to be in their office and say, draft up documents protecting me from that sedation. I'm not ever doing that again, unless it is absolutely essential that do not sedate me. So I call her a DNS. She's a do not sedate. <laughs> the next two times she had ARDS, which how crazy is that, right? Um, she was awake. So she has pictures of herself sedated the first time. And then the next time she's sitting there, she's like, my main complaint was that I was bored. No. And it's not comfortable. It's not fun. But comparing it to her experience and especially her outcomes of being sedated, She's like, no. I'm, And she said, so it was so powerful to me. I'm not afraid of ARDS. I'm not afraid of ventilators. I'm terrified of sedation. Do not sedate me. Now I've had people on social media say um, it was terrible to wake up or come out of sedation with, with a breathing tube. I was so scared. So obviously the endotracheal tube's not not comfortable, but that's why the ATF bundle isn't just like turn off sedation. Good luck. It's manage them, humanize their care, figure out what they need to help them through a really difficult thing. And I also think it's really hard when you've been sedated and then you're jerked back into reality because everything's cloudy and you don't know what that is. And so what I'm hearing from clinicians and survivors is there's a huge difference in doing awakening trials later on in the game. Once every all these changes have happened from sedation versus shortly after intubation, once those maybe paralytics have worn off, Now there's no longer an indication for sedation. So they come out like it's a colonoscopy, Mm -hmm. you know, just kind of drowsy. And you're like, hey, got a family right there. Here's where you're at. Remember what we talked about 20 minutes ago? If you had a chance to Mm -hmm. prep them, right? Which is preferable, but not always the case. But keeping their brain as intact as possible helps them acclimate, getting them up, right? There's something so unnatural about being intubated on a ventilator. You have the very opposite of your breathing patterns, but there's something really normal about sitting up walking, mobilizing. So the sooner you start doing those normal things, communicating, the sooner you can get them unrestrained. Sometimes it might take a few days or a few hours, but once you can get them unrestrained, at least to write while you're at the bedside, normalize this intervention and they start to calm down and acclimate. So you have a lot more ventilator dysynchrony when you wait later in the game because they don't, they can't just jive with the ventilator. But when they come out shortly after intubation, it is a different scenario. And that's what survivors have said. Um, another survivor, she's, she has asthma and she sent me a, she, I just knew her from Instagram and she sent me a a selfie and said, Hey, I'm intubated again. Dang it. But it's so much better because I'm awake right after intubation. And so I interviewed her and she talked about, I mean, she's young. She's in her twenties. She's a pre-med student, has worked as a paramedic. So she's super smart and capable and strong. And then it took her eight days to be able to walk again after one of her past medically induced comas. But this time she's like, I was up walking around in my room on the ventilator. And this team thought I was insane, but I was able to request, I want to get up and walk. And she got at the ventilator way sooner, walked out the door. She's like, I will never, I never want to be sedated again. So it depends on if they've had previous experiences, but most of them say, I am glad that I was able to be with my family. One survivor said he had severe ARDS. And he said, um, I'm so glad that I was able to be there for my wife. I don't know if she could have gone through that really scary experience without me. I remember telling him he did end up having to be prone and sedated. And I remember telling him and he looked to his wife and they were communicating, like making that decision together to go for that intervention. And then he was sedated for two days. Once he could be supine, we took it off and he was up walking right away. But so that was the only time that they weren't t- talking in together. If anyone's married, I mean, how long do you go without talking to your spouse? Mm-hmm. But for these people, it's so that alone, that kind of isolation. One survivor said that when he was sedated, he was engulfed in this feeling of isolation and loneliness. And in addition to trying to save his daughters that were kidnapped. But I hadn't thought about like, we only really do solitary confinement for our prisoners of war and our incarcerated people, right? And it makes them psychotic. So that kind of deprivation from human touch and interaction is something to really consider too with what happens. So it's not comfortable to be intubated, but I have seen thousands of patients now and heard of these other ICUs doing this as well that when you do it right away, you provide these other interventions to help them be comfortable and acclimate, it is doable and it's totally worth it.
1: Wow. You have given us so much to think about. And I loved your uh, recommendation about thinking around communication as a human right and letting that be a driver of our care.
0: I will say- I did a whole episode on communication. I have to look at which, which one it was, but I just had survivors share clips of what it was like not to be able to communicate and those that said what communication meant to them. And a number of them said, I was trying to communicate during these awakening trials and they briefly turned off the sedation. They're trying to say, don't kill me. Or they're trying to say, where's my children? Or can you feed my cat? <laughs> they have okay. real, really important things that they need to communicate. And they said, um, a number of them said, I was trying to signal with my hand to write. I knew I couldn't talk. I recognized that. I was trying to say, let me write. But to the nurse, it, it was interpreted as they're trying to pull out the restraints and they're going to pull out their endotracheal right. tube. Yeah. So they were aware of them being tied down tighter and sedation being restarted. And they were thrown back and deeper into that delirium. That alone is extremely traumatizing. So if we come, let them come out with the expectation, whether it's right after invasion or whether it's after their seizures are done or whatever, that they have a tool to communicate right away. That alone will change everyone's experience. I'm amazed by when I'm on site with teams. I'm like, so where are your clipboards? Where are your whiteboards? Where are your letter? We don't have. We have like one letter board in the unit. I'm like, but you have five intubated patients, so you don't expect to communicate with your patients, and that's going to make your job much harder. So, absolutely huge
1: priority. Thank you. We will post uh, links to your podcast and any other resources that you think would be helpful before we go. Do you want to just? Uh, Explain what you, you know, give us your handle for your podcast once again.
0: My podcast is called Walking Home from the ICU because that's the goal. We want our patients to walk home from the ICU. And my website is daytonicuconsulting.com. All the transcripts for the podcast episodes are there. Um, I do have 161 episodes, so it's a lot. So within the tab for podcast, if you go to that podcast, um, you can search by topics. They're organized by categories. You can also put in keywords uh, and there are citations for those episodes. So there's a transcript, but also every study we refer to, it's there. This is deeply rooted in the evidence. So go go check it out for
1: yourselves. Thanks so much for being with us. And I hope to speak with you again. I don't think that we've actually finished uh, talking about this really exciting work and ideas Thanks, Kaylee. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We're grateful to those of you who continue to follow and share this podcast on social media and help our audience grow. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at www.radicalnursetalk.com or by emailing us at radicalnursetalk@gmail.com. at gmail.com. The producer-editor of this podcast is Jeremy Ramos Foley. Social media by Amy Strachan.